Welcome to Indie Stories. I am Surinder Deol. This week I have a wonderful gift for you. It's a piece written by Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first Prime Minister and the most loved Indian political leader. Because of his education at Harrow School, Trinity College, Cambridge, and the one who was trained in law at the Inner Temple, he acquired deep thinking skills that he used to probe India's history and culture. Who doesn't remember his Twist with Destiny speech that he delivered as the clock struck midnight to usher India into an era of freedom? Nehru called himself an agnostic and a scientific humanist. This is what he wrote in his autobiography. Quote, the spectacle of what is called religion, or at any rate organized religion, in India and elsewhere, has filled me with horror and I have frequently condemned it and wished to make a clean sweep of it. Almost always it seems to stand for blind belief and reaction, dogma and bigotry, superstition, exploitation and the preservation of vested interests." Unquote. Indie Stories is a podcast for short fiction. While what I am presenting here may be called an essay or a page from a book on philosophy and culture, that may be true, but it is also true that the journey of Hinduism during the ages is also a story. It's not a piece of fiction, but a fascinating story nevertheless. It's a story, I should say, which is highly relevant for the times we live in. The word Hinduism is being redefined and new meanings are being assigned to it. In this context, I think it is important for us to know what Pandit Nehru with his critical scientific inquiring mind thought about Hinduism. This story is excerpted from Nehru's book, The Discovery of India, which he wrote in Ahmednagar Fort Prison during a period of five months, April through September in 1944. Let us listen. Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru What is Hinduism? The Aryan migrations are supposed to have taken place about a thousand years after the Indus Valley period. And yet, it is possible that there was no considerable gap and tribes and people came to India from the Northwest from time to time, as they did in later ages, and became absorbed in India. We might say that the first great cultural synthesis and fusion took place between the incoming Aryans and the Dravidians who were probably the representatives of the Indus Valley civilization. Out of this synthesis and fusion grew the ancient Indian races and the basic Indian culture, which had distinctive elements of both. In the ages that followed, there came many races, Iranians, Greeks, Huns, Turks before Islam, early Christians, 
Jews, Zoroastrians, they came, made a difference and were absorbed in India. India was, according to Dodwell, infinitely absorbent like the ocean. It is odd to think of India with her caste system and exclusiveness having this astonishing inclusive capacity to absorb foreign races and cultures. Perhaps it was due to this that she retained her vitality and rejuvenated herself from time to time. The Muslims, when they came, were also powerfully affected by her. The foreigners, Muslim Turks, says Vincent Smith, like their forerunners, universally yielded to the wonderful assimilative power of Hinduism and rapidly became Hinduized. In this quotation, Vincent Smith has used the word Hinduism and Hinduized. I do not think it is correct to use them in this way unless they are used in the widest sense of Indian culture. They are apt to mislead today when they are associated with a much narrower and specifically religious concept. The word Hindu does not occur at all in our ancient literature. The first reference to it in an Indian book is, I am told, in a tantric work of the 8th century, where Hindus mean a people and not the followers of a particular religion. But it is clear that the word is a very old one as it occurs in the Avesta in the Old Persian. It was used then and for a thousand years or more later by the peoples of Western and Central Asia for India or rather for the people living on the other side of the Indus River. The word is clearly derived from Sindhu, the old as well as the present. Indian name for the Indus. From this Sindhu came the words Hindu and Hindustan as well as Indus and India. The famous Chinese pilgrim Ising who came to India in the 7th century writes in his record of travels that the northern tribes, that is the people of Central Asia, called India Hindu. But he adds, this is not at all a common name and the most suitable name for India is the noble land, Arya Desha. The use of the word Hindu in connection with a particular religion is of a very late occurrence. The old inclusive term for religion in India was Arya Dharma. Dharma really means something more than religion. It is from a root word which means to hold together. It is the inmost constitution of a thing, the law of its inner being. It is an ethical concept which includes the moral code, rightnessness and the whole range of man's duties and responsibilities. Arya Dharma would include all the faiths, Vedic and non-Vedic, that originated in India. It was used by Buddhists and Jains as well as by those who accepted the Vedas. Buddha always called his way to the salvation, the Aryan path. The expression Vedic Dharma was also used in ancient times 
to signify more particularly and exclusively all those philosophies, moral teachings, ritual and practices which were supposed to derive from the Vedas. Thus all those who acknowledge the general authority of the Vedas could be said to belong to the Vedic Dharma. Sanatana Dharma, meaning the ancient religion, could be applied to any of the ancient Indian faiths including Buddhism and Jainism, but the expression has been more or less monopolized today by some orthodox sections among the Hindus who claim to follow the ancient faith. Buddhism and Jainism were certainly not Hinduism or even the Vedic Dharma, yet they arose in India and were integral parts of Indian life, culture and philosophy. A Buddhist or Jain in India is a hundred percent product of Indian thought and culture, yet neither is a Hindu by faith. It is therefore entirely misleading to refer to Indian culture as Hindu culture. In later ages, this culture was greatly influenced by the impact of Islam and yet it remained basically and distinctively Indian. Today it is experiencing in a hundred ways the powerful effect of the industrial civilization which rose in the West and it is difficult to say with any precision what the outcome will be. Hinduism as a faith is vague, amorphous, many-sided all things to all men. It is hardly possible to define it or indeed to say definitely whether it's a religion or not in the usual sense of the word. In its present form or even in the past, it embraces many beliefs and practices from the highest to the lowest, often opposed to or contradicting each other. Its essential spirit came to be to live and let live. Mahatma Gandhi has attempted to define it and I quote, If I were asked to define the Hindu creed, I should simply say, search after truth through non-violent means. A man may not believe in God and still call himself a Hindu. Hinduism is a relentless pursuit after truth. Hinduism is the religion of truth. Truth is God. Denial of God we have known. Denial of truth we have not known." Unquote. Truth and non-violence, so says Gandhi. But many eminent and undoubted Hindus say that non-violence as Gandhi understands is, is no essential part of the Hindu creed. We thus have truth left by itself as the distinguishing mark of Hinduism. That of course is no definition at all. It is therefore incorrect and undesirable to use Hindu or Hinduism for Indian culture even with reference to the distant past, although the various aspects of thought as embodied in ancient writings were the dominant expression of that culture. Much more is it too incorrect to use those terms in that sense today. So long as the old faith and philosophy were chiefly a way of life and an outlook on the world, they were largely synonymous with Indian culture. But when a more rigid religion developed with all manner of ritual and ceremonial, it became something more and at the same time something much less than that composite culture. 
a Christian or a Muslim could and often did adapt himself to the Indian way of life and culture and yet remain in faith an Orthodox Christian or Muslim. He had Indianized himself and became an Indian without changing his religion. The correct word for Indian as applied to country or culture or the historical continuity of our varying traditions is Hindi from Hind, the shortened form of Hindustan. Hindi is still commonly used for India. In the countries of Western Asia, in Iran and Turkey, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Egypt and elsewhere, India has always been referred to and is still called Hind and everything Indian is called Hindi. Hindi has nothing to do with religion and a Muslim or a Christian Indian is as much a Hindi as a person who follows Hinduism as a religion. Americans who call all Indians Hindus are not far wrong. They would be perfectly correct if they use the word Hindi. Unfortunately, the word Hindi has become associated in India with a particular script, the Devanagari script of Sanskrit, and so it has become difficult to use it in its larger and more natural significance. Perhaps when present-day controversies subside, we may revert to its original and more satisfying use. Today, the word Hindustani is used for Indian. It is of course derived from Hindustan. But this is too much of a mouthful and it has no such historical and cultural associations as Hindi has. It would certainly appear or to refer to ancient periods of Indian culture as Hindustani. Whatever the word we may use, Indian or Hindi or Hindustani, for our cultural tradition, we see in the past that some inner urge towards synthesis derived essentially from the Indian philosophic outlook was the dominant feature of Indian cultural and even racial development. Each incursion of foreign elements was a challenge to this culture, but it was met successfully by a new synthesis and a process of absorption. This was also a process of rejuvenation and new blooms of culture arose out of it, the background and essential basis however remaining much the same. The Vedas were the outpourings of the Aryans as they streamed into the rich land of India. They brought their ideas with them from the common stock out of which grew the Avesta in Iran and elaborated them in the soil of India. Even the language of the Vedas bears a striking resemblance to that of Avesta and it has been remarked that the Avista is nearer the Veda than the Veda is to its original epic Sanskrit. How are we to consider the scripture of various religions, much of it believed by its votaries to be revealed scripture? To analyze it and criticize it and look upon it as a human document is often to offend the true believers, yet there is no other way to consider it. I have always hesitated to read books of religion. The totalitarian claims made on their behalf 
did not appeal to me. The outward evidences of the practice of religion that I saw did not encourage me to go to the original sources. Yet I had to drift to these books for ignorance of them was not a virtue and was often a severe drawback. I knew that some of them had powerfully influenced humanity and anything that could have been done so must have some inherent power and virtue in it, some vital source of energy. I found great difficulty in reading through many parts of them, for try as I would, I could not arouse sufficient interest, but the sheer beauty of some passages would hold me, and then a phrase or a sentence would suddenly leap up and electrify me and make me feel the presence of the really great. Some words of the Buddha or of Christ would shine out with deep meaning and seem to me applicable as much today as when they were uttered 2000 or more years ago. There was a compelling reality about them, a permanence which time and space could not touch. So I felt sometimes when I read about Socrates or the Chinese philosophers and also when I read the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. I was not interested in the metaphysics or the description of ritual or the many other things which apparently had no relation to the problems that faced me. Perhaps I did not understand the inner significance of much that I read and sometime indeed a second reading threw more light. I made no real effort to understand mysterious passages and I passed by those which had no particular significance for me. Nor was I interested in long commentaries and glossaries. I could not approach these books or any book as holy writ, which must be accepted in their totality without challenge or demur. Indeed, this approach of holy writ usually resulted in my mind being close to what they contain. I was much more friendly and open to them when I could consider them as having been written by human beings, very wise and far-seeing, but nevertheless ordinary mortals and not incarnations or mouthpieces of a divinity about whom I had no knowledge or surety whatever. It has always seemed to me a much more magnificent and impressive thing that a human being should rise to great heights mentally and spiritually and should then seek to raise others rather than that he should be the mouthpiece of a divine or superior power. Some of the founders of religions were astonishing individuals, but all their glory vanishes in my eyes when I cease to think of them as human beings. What impresses me and gives me hope is the growth of the mind and spirit of man and not his being used as an agent to convey a message. Mythology affected me in much the same way. If people believed in the factual contents of these stories, the whole thing was absurd and ridiculous. But as soon as one ceased believing in them, they appeared in a new light, a new beauty, a wonderful flowering of a richly endowed imagination, full of human lessons. No one believes now in the stories of Greek gods and goddesses, and so, without any difficulty, 
we can admire them and they become part of our mental heritage. But if we had to believe in them, what a burden it would be and how oppressed by this weight of belief, we would often miss their beauty. Indian mythology is richer, vaster, very beautiful and full of meaning. I have often wondered what manner of men and women they were who gave shape to these bright dreams and lovely fancies and out of what gold mine of thought and imagination they dug them. Looking at scripture, then as a product of the human mind, we have to remember the age in which it was written, the environment and mental climate in which it grew, the vast distance in time and thought and experience that separates it from us. We have to forget the trappings of ritual and religious usage in which it is wrapped and remember the social background in which it expanded. Many of the problems of human life have a permanence and a touch of eternity about them and hence the abiding interest in these ancient books. But they dealt with other problems also limited to their particular age which have no living interest for us now. That was What is Hinduism? An excerpt from Pandit Nehru's book The Discovery of India. He started by saying that thousands upon thousands of people came to India through the ages but over time they were Indianized irrespective of their religion. Poet Firak Gorakhpuri best described it when he wrote Karva Aate Gaye Hindostan Banta Gaya. The words like Hind, Hindi or Hindu were not historically used to refer to a religion. They were descriptive identifiers for all people who lived in this landmass. It doesn't matter what god they worshipped. Hinduism was the culture of which Hinduism which we call a religion was a part. This idea is incorporated in words like Hindustani or Hindustaniyat. To define Hinduism in a narrow sense is a political idea for a political benefit. It has no historical precedent. India's culture is a composite culture of people who belong to different races and religions and that is the beauty of India. That is why, according to Nehru and other founding fathers, India could not be anything other than a secular democracy. Any attempt to change that will not be India's long-term interest. National unity can only come out of diversity. It will never come from division or hate. Indie Stories brings you writing that is not only the best in its class but also a message for positive social change, for peace and prosperity, for harmony and goodwill. I'll be back next week with another groundbreaking, heartwarming story. I'm Surinder Deol saying goodbye.